What's up? It's episode 120, Pain Points of Wealth, and the Pessimism Party continues. Despite the fact the news just keeps coming in better than expected, unemployment at a 53-year low right now. We've got inflation continuing to come down, and earnings better than expected could be a Goldilocks economy, but Wall Street doesn't want you to think that. We're going to get into it today, and we got a great guest today with my friend Carrie Kirpin, entrepreneur, sold her business. We're going to get really deep on the psychology of money. It's going to be a great show. Check it out. Hit the music. Guys, looks like the Fed is accomplishing everything they set out to do. You know, a year ago, they started raising rates because inflation was too high. So, you know, the cost of raw materials went up. And what's happening with raw materials? Oil, corn, soybeans, everything you think of is dropping in price dramatically, which means prices are coming down. We got deflation, not inflation. Well, it depends on where, right? Because you've got good services. Prices are starting to drop because consumers went from sitting inside ordering off Amazon, just loving their e-commerce accounts, uh, to now everyone's out in the economy. In fact, you know, if you look at traveling overseas this summer, Americans are going to travel in droves. So services inflation's been a lot stickier. But to your point, Bob, I mean, overall, and depending on what we're talking about, goods and services, you're starting to see some deflation in some parts of that inflation number. Well, you know what, guys? I, I, don't, I don't really notice a difference because every time I talk to my clients, they're traveling somewhere, they're buying a new house, they're, you know, they're, they're spending money. Like It really hasn't slowed anybody down from our perspective. That's a good point. And uh, you know, meanwhile, we're getting good economic numbers on the, on the inflation front, right? CPI was 4.9%. Uh, PPI had a fantastic print. Uh, just the other day, you know, came in at 2.3% versus 2.7 last month. So, you know, you're, you're, the Fed's accomplishing everything they want to accomplish. Meanwhile, everybody's like freaking out about, you know, well, they're going to increase rates one more time. I think they're going to pause. I think they're done, is my opinion. Yeah, I think that's what a lot um, of the uh, prognosticators have gleaned from Jay Powell's very, very, you know, a nebulous <laughs> kind of, it, it kind of just try to figure out every word he's saying and try to construe something from it. But you're hearing a lot of negativity around, obviously, commercial real estate, uh, a lot of the regional banks, which we're still starting to see some issues with some of these regional banks. But, you know, the Fed's kind of backstopped that, right? Because all the deposits, for the most part, are being taken care of by the Fed, even if the bank fails, and they're orchestrating some sort of buyer, like we saw with J.P. Morgan and First Republic. So the banking system's not really failing here, even with some banks actually failing. I know, but it's just amazing. They get all these pundits. I mean, even Jamie Dimon is a very smart guy. But the news media only picks out the one negative thing he says. They don't say, you know, they, they forget about all the other positive things that he points out. Um, now, everybody knows commercial real estate has some issues. So that means the whole banking system is going to collapse. I mean, it's ridiculous how they extrapolate, you know, one bit of data, you know, into this Armageddon. But meanwhile, you have... You know, interest rates coming down, and that's and that impacts everything. And look at oil, guys. Oil was hundred and thirty dollars a barrel. You know, when they started raising rates, it's now down to seventy three dollars a barrel. Not only is that deflationary, but it's also stimulative. When you have oil come down, the cost of everything around the world goes down. Everybody gets a tax break. It's a global tax break. That's stimulus. That means the economy is going to grow. Well, you know what, Dad? I, I, I'm happy to hear that because Ryan's finally getting his Lamborghini out of the garage because gas prices have come <laughs> down so much. <laughs> I wish, Chris. You know, it's like Bob says, you guys work me like a dog, but you pay me like a puppy. Um, All the while, Ryan's in Puerto Rico. <laughs> that's right. I'm in yeah, Puerto exactly, Rico today. Yeah. Hey, Chris. 
Yeah, uh, uh, you're broadcasting from the office. I'm broadcasting from the office. Where's Ryan? Oh, he's, you know, somewhere around the world again. Hey, Dad, Someone's what are you doing for Memorial Day weekend this year? Are you just going down the Jersey Shore or are you going to France like Ryan? <laughs> nah, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's only, they only fit so many people in that uh, Red Bull pit, you know. So I, I'm going to stay <laughs> in Ocean City while Ryan just uh, wines and dines himself over there on the Riviera. Well, look, I mean, someone someone has to make this look pretty. And it's certainly not you guys. So, you know, the other thing to think about here, too, is the employment numbers were just so hot the other week. If you look at that employment number, we've added another 1.1 million jobs this year. We're up to 155.8 million people employed. That's the most ever in history. You know, meanwhile, all you can hear about is how somehow labor is going to fall off a cliff. ChatGPT somehow is going to like displace all of our jobs. I don't know how that's going to work. But, you know, but you can't really deny that number. And when wages are going up and they still are going up um, and they're going over inflation now, the last couple of months, you've seen actual labor go up more than the inflation rate. It's going to be so hard to put this economy in a recession this year. And you're still seeing strategists double down on that. That's a good point, Ryan. I was talking to a client of mine yesterday. We did a full financial review. He spent the entire time telling me how horrible things were. And as we were updating it, I said, well, what's your income going to be for this year? And he gave me the number. And I said, well, let me get this straight. You say things are horrible, but the income number I just entered into our program is the highest amount of money you have ever made. So tell me again why things are so bad. Yeah, I think what's what's remarkable is you look at the sentiment numbers, and we like to look at what retail investors think, what ins institutional investors think, and the level of bearishness or negativity is at extreme levels. Um, and you know that's usually a counter indicator. So it's like the news keeps coming in surprisingly good, which we've kind of advocated now for for over a year we said look this is not the kind of recession that we saw during the great financial crisis in fact we don't think we're going into recession and the numbers keep backing that but it's remarkable to me to see that the sentiment just doesn't change it's just the jitteriness right now the uncertainty and the uncomfortable feeling investors have that's just like another good sign that's time to deploy your capital it's not time to wait on the sidelines and and hope for things to, as Bob likes to say settle down because as we know, we said this last week, they don't settle down, they settle up. Now, here's the thing that drives me nuts. The permit bearers, they make their case, right? Well, the only reason we had a bull market in 21 and 22 is because the Fed lowered interest rates dramatically, right? And you had all this money come flushed into the system and, you know, it just artificially, you know, inflated stock and bond prices, right? It was a, it was a sugar high. Uh, and now they're saying, well, you know, even though rates are coming down, you know, even though rates are up, you know, the market's going to continue to go down, right? So maybe they're right. Maybe that the interest rates going up has caused the market to go down. But they weren't invested when rates were low. So can you have it both <laughs> ways? You know, we're, we think it's horrible to invest while rates are going down, and we think it's really bad to invest when rates are going up. They never got invested, right? Rosenberg got out of the market in 2008. He's still acting as if he, you know, he's still a bear. I mean, when do you change your opinion, right? When the facts change, I change my opinion. Bob, getting fired up there. No, I, you know, I agree with you 100%. I mean, it's, that, that's, that's the truth. And the other thing is earnings, right? I mean, earnings markets basically are stocks are they're, you know, associated with how much money their company earns. And earnings continue to go higher. I mean, you look at the last decade, maybe there was a little bit of a sugar high because rates were low, but companies earned more and more money. They took more and more market share. You know, think about the advent of Google. Amazon, right? I mean, Meta, all these companies really came into their prime in the last decade. And it wasn't because we had a sugar high. It's because we had innovation and the world changed. Right. And right now you're seeing the same thing this year is, you know, we have earnings coming in negative this quarter. But by the end of the year, earnings are going to be positive again going into next year. That's what the market's looking at. The market's looking a year at 
earnings growth is going to be very, very good. In fact, it may even heat up because everyone's going back to the office, which means productivity is going to move up, which is deflationary and is great for companies' bottom line. And that's really what you're seeing moving forward. So it's, it's just so foolish to wait to invest here when all the good stuff, if you look, at, if you look out into the future, is really, really good. Well, the other thing, too, is like if you look at what's going on with the banks, you know, 50 percent of Americans are feeling insecure about their deposits. But, you know, the reality is only one one out of every hundred dollars is, is uninsured. So, you know, the media would make you think that every bank's going to fall apart. But the reality is, is that's just not true. Yeah. But you know what, Chris, I love the banking system. Um, <laughs> it makes our job so easy. Right. I just it's like right now, you know, because of the, of the crisis, you know, the bond market's already telling you that it's over. Right. Interest rates are falling. The 10-year Treasury is under 340. The, the two-year Treasury is under 4%. So the bond market is telling you rates are coming lower. Um, banks are panicking now. They've got to raise interest rates to, to retain and attract deposits, which allows us to buy federally insured CDs, brokered CDs. We can trade like Treasuries in the, in the, in the primary market and secondary market at rates we haven't seen in 15 years. And meanwhile, you know, as rates go down, uh, the bull market, which I believe started in October, right? We said the market bottomed in October. Interest rates peaked in October. That's our story. I'm sticking to it. God bless America. God bless our banks. God bless the Federal Reserve. God bless pain capital management, guys. We're in a bull market. Hey, hope you're enjoying episode 120, Pain Points of Wealth. Everything you hear on this podcast, along with some due diligence of your own, can help you get ahead financially, literally at any stage of your journey. But if you're thinking, I want a more hands-on approach, well, if you've saved over a million dollars for your financial independence plan, Bob, Chris, and I will run for you our now famous Total Financial Master Plan, and we'll do that with no obligation or cost. It's a full holistic review. We literally look at everything. We're going to go ahead and build you your own personalized financial portal. We're going to give you a bird's eye view of your entire financial picture, and we're just going to hone in on every issue you need to address today, whether it's an income plan for retirement, how you're going to draw from your portfolio, how do you take Social Security, how do you factor in inflation, We'll put together a full dynamic income plan. We're going to look at diversification. Did you get hit hard in the last year or so as markets have been extremely volatile? Don't know what to do. We're just sitting with way too much money in cash. Paralysis by analysis, waiting for a sign to do something. Well, we're going to put together a full investment game plan, show you how to grow your money, but most importantly, protect it over the rest of your life. And we're going to look at fees and taxes. Wall Street just loves to sell you high-cost products that are very tax inefficient, whether it's an annuity mutual fund, brokerage products, structured products. We'll go through every investment you own a deep dive, show you all the hidden costs are, and optimize your portfolio for taxes. It's not what you make. It's what you take. We're going to give you our full tax playbook. Literally, if you've saved over a million dollars, simply go to www.paincm.com slash financial plan to see if you qualify for a free financial review. All right, it's the tipping point. This is where we pinpoint the pain point. Of course, that's P-A-Y-N-E, having the biggest impact on your wealth right now. And I'm really excited today. I have one of my really good friends on the show, Mrs. Carrie Kirpin. She's an entrepreneur, a best-selling author, speaker, global champion of women. Uh, she's a co-founder and CEO of Likeable Media, one of the very first digital media agencies ever in existence. Carrie recently sold her business in 2021 and is the author of Work It!, Secrets of Success from the Boldest Women in the Business. Not to mention, she's a mother of three for Charlotte, Kate, and Seth. Carrie, I have no words to say how excited I am to have you on the show today. It's amazing to have you here. Thanks for being on the podcast. 
Thank you, Ryan. And I'm so excited to be here and be here with with the pain team and just ready to go. Love it. <laughs> it is a team. It is a team, us pains. Um, in care, you know, look, you've, you've had a lot of success and we've known each other for years. Um, you had a liquidity event with your business recently. And I'm just curious, you know, how did it all start? When, when you grew up, did you grow up wealthy? Did you grow up middle class? I mean, what, what are some of the, I guess, your relationship with money from the beginning? Um, and I thought that'd be a good place to start. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I grew up, I would say, solidly middle class with parents who chose security over any form of risk. And I'll tell you how that worked. My dad was a judge. First of all, he started as an amazing, amazing defense attorney. Unbelievable, but could not hack it, was not was not into uh, taking any kind of risks with his own firm, anything like that. Quickly became a judge and served for pretty much the entirety of his career um, in a space where he worked for the government and got a pension. Similarly, my mom worked in um, the education system. She was a social worker and chose to work in a school so she would have a pension. Everything was about security. I remember in 1989 when the market crashed, um, I was like, oh my God, guys, are we going to be okay? I was I was probably 13 or something like this. And um, like, oh my gosh, are we going to be okay? And they were like, oh, don't, don't worry, honey. Don't worry. We don't, we don't put our money there. This is like, it was like, we were just, they didn't have any money, any extra money. Um, I never wanted for anything. Uh, and they were very focused on choosing careers that you loved that were as secure as possible. And so throughout most of my life, my parents were like, we don't know where the heck you came from. Yeah. Yeah. That's a weird thing. Like, <laughs> like, literally the opposite of being an entrepreneur, right? Where everything's risk, everything's uncertain. Like, did you have this feeling like from your own perspective that you liked risk and you didn't really understand why your parents wanted safety or like, where did that come from? Where you come from a very, very safe background, like middle-class background, like you said, pensions, all those things that are like secure. Like what happened to you, Carrie? <laughs> why? It's a good question. Yeah. Well, I will tell you that it has been the great internal struggle of my life. This this struggle with money, which is why I'm I'm so happy. And it's not really with money; it's with the mental thinking behind money. And I, I, that's why I'm so happy to be here today. I I was focused primarily, like my parents, on being excellent at what I did. Like my dad was an unbelievable judge, unbelievable, the fairest of the fair always was recognized for everything. My mom was an incredible social worker who worked with kids with disabilities. Like they just were the best. I was also focused on being the best. And I think for me, I had built a career in marketing and I had a random tipping point, which you probably know, Ryan, which is when I decided to get married, um, I had a very unique wedding. And the unique wedding was basically, tell <laughs> I, I'll, tell, yeah. I'll tell the story. And this is how I learned to be a risk taker. Okay. So um, I got married very young at 24, got divorced pretty quickly, had a starter marriage, you know, just quick in and out. And it was just bad news. My parents paid for a wedding. They came from a middle-class background. They threw a beautiful wedding. Um, and I felt immense guilt, immense about this. Later, I met the love of my life, who is a larger-than-life personality. That is Mr. Dave Kirpin. He is a New York Times bestselling author and um, co-founder of Likeable, actually. And he wanted 
everyone he's ever known to come to his wedding. So like Ryan, he knows you. He'd be like, you have to come. But just meeting Chris and Bob, he'd be like, hey, I need the whole Payne family to watch me get married to the love of my life. This is true. This is very okay, true. Okay, so this yeah. is like each It's very adorable. It's adorable. However, number one, I wasn't going to ask my parents for money. Number two, I wasn't going to invest in a wedding because for me, I knew that essentially a wedding is a wish. And I had already had one investment gone wrong in that area, right? <laughs> At the same time, I wanted him to have what he wanted, which was the wedding of his dreams. So I had to get really creative, had a marketing background, like I said, focused on excellence at all times. I said, okay, we both love baseball. We're going to pitch a minor league park. Uh, so we went to the minor league affiliate of the New York Mets. We said, we are going to buy out your sponsorship. What does it cost? They said, 6K. We said, great. We're going to buy out the sponsorship for the night. We're going to call it our field of dreams. We are going to resell in sponsors. Uh, for the event. So instead of like Pepsi tossing t-shirts into the audience, 1-800-Flowers tosses bridal bouquets. It's going to be campy and adorable. <laughs> we'll get married on the field in front of 8,000 people. We'll serve hot dogs and, you know, soda and beer to our closest family and friends and everyone that we ever wanted to invite. And it's not going to cost a thing. And we're going to raise money for charity. So they thought we were nuts. Mm -hmm. Very fun. It was a moment in time. It was like a flash. And um, we raised $100,000 in sponsorships. We raised wow. $25,000 in Mass Society. Yep. And we had the wedding of our dreams. We had Dave and Carrie bobbleheads. It was fabulous and fun. <laughs> and what a wedding should be. What a wedding should be. Okay. So after this happens, now imagine I come from this middle-class family. I'm working really hard. I'm making low six figures, which in your 20s, like you're feeling pretty good. I had started saving, like doing all the stuff I was supposed to do because, of course, I was risk averse. But then I have this event. And that event made me feel like I could do anything. I could do anything. And all of the sponsors came to us. They said, oh, you should do something. We bet on you guys. And that was how we started our agency. So uh, what I like to say is I sort of was dragged kicking and screaming into entrepreneurship. Like I was pushed from that event. There was no way I couldn't capitalize on that. It got national and international press. It was a moment. We had to try it. Now, when we did it, I was the much more risk averse right. uh, entrepreneur. No. Dave has no problem with risk. I was a mess. I was focused entirely on preservation, making sure we had enough money. Who were we hiring? How were we doing it? And then eventually, how could we save? Because we made no money in the beginning. Um, and so I learned to tolerate risk over time. But even while I was doing it, like it, it it was really hard internally. I constantly felt you guys, like I'll, I'll tell you honestly, like, and I think Ryan even knows this, like there were throughout the entire thing, when I was making seven figures, I was like, I could be homeless at any moment. Like there was such a, and not that I ever was homeless, right? but it's because I was built from such secure stock. Yeah. I was like, oh my God. Like I sort of, it, it was this constant internal struggle. And I didn't get comfortable until much later. So, Carrie, you basically had to change your whole outlook on life. I mean, you basically had to go against, yeah. you know, 25, 30 years yeah. of conditioning to, to get to this point. I did. And I still have coping mechanisms. I still absolutely, like, you know how you're not, you guys know, because you, I mean, this is your world, okay? You know how you're supposed to, like, leave your money in and not check, you don't really check it so much. Like, you check it sometimes, but, like, you shouldn't, <laughs> you shouldn't be checking your shit daily, right? Like, you shouldn't be really looking at that because you'll, you'll get a stomachache. What are you talking Sometimes. about? Ryan still has his communion money. 
<laughs> he probably does. Right. <laughs> I, I, sometimes I chat like as a self-soothing mechanism or like a something like just, I just check because I feel that anxiety. And that is just an inherent part of who I am reconciling the fact that I am totally different from how I was brought up. And thank God I am because I had a level of security not only um, for myself, but, you know, my dad died. My mom has multiple sclerosis and needs a lot of care. And thank God, thank God that I did this because I was able to not be afraid when an adverse event happened, you know, and it was, it was, I'm very grateful that I retrained myself, even though it was hard. And even though I still sometimes get a little anxiety. And Dave has no fear. Like it's so, it's, it's incredible to me. And that is why we made the perfect team in building likable because Dave, I used to say, I used to say Dave would swing for the fences. He took big risks all the time. He's a serial entrepreneur, started lots and lots of things. He'd swing for the fences and I would just consistently hit singles consistently. Like I would say, okay, here, we're making this money here, here, we're making this money here. And that balance proved to be very well, you know, worked really well for us. And, and, um, eventually we both kind of swung for the fences, which was great, but within within reason always i always have that sort of practical mindset sometimes i say it's like he's a balloon in the sky and i'm holding the balloon like don't fly away i'm like you know but because of that i get to float too if that makes sense like it's it's a perfect partnership i i always say i never ever would have started that business without dave's fearlessness ever and like yes I was extremely methodical, thoughtful. I made it profitable. So when we exited, it was really healthy and great and valued well. Um, but I wouldn't have been able to do that without without that pie in the sky guy. Well, it seems like over time, like you said, you've embraced risk to a point of, you know, I think it's almost like you realize it's kind of like, Bob, actually, I'll, I'll give you a a tribute to this that's, you know, we always said, don't work for anybody else because that's actually riskier because then you're relying on other people. Um, and it sounds like with like your mom, uh, her health, your father passing away, like the uncertainty of life is crazy. Uh, and obviously running a business like that too, but you really have more control. Ironically, in a weird way, um, I find this with entrepreneurship is like you actually have more control. Uh, it's less risky to make decisions on your own than be relying on somebody else. And I'm just wondering for you, did that correlate with, obviously, like you've had a liquidity event. Um, you know, there's money that came in the door. Did you feel at that point like, that was overwhelming or something that you wanted to learn and take control of? Like what, how did your relationship with money change? Or did you feel like you're up for the challenge when it's like, okay, all of a sudden I'm not going to have this business anymore. I'm going to be living off the land to some extent. Like how did that change your, your mindset and what was your relationship with money then or now? So this is a great question and actually ties back to a little bit to decision-making with Dave on this. So you, you all love this. I'll spill the tea for you. So, okay. Uh, running the business, I made a healthy living annually, but wasn't able to put a huge bulk sum away, right? I was I was just dollar cost averaging fine. We're just putting money in. Good, you're saving great. every year. A lot of entrepreneurs don't even do that. Saving every year because Harry Kirpin was not messing around. I would put every month a certain amount in the market. I had a brokerage account. I was doing the best, you know, sort of the best I could. I would put money in the 529s for the kids. I, you know, Smart. I was saving. I was yes. saving, saving. I love 529s. Love. Okay, so was putting putting money away, making a good living, but had no real cushion. Like if the business went away tomorrow, there would be, it would be a problem. Not yeah, that it would have. But no pressure, Carrie. Relax. No right. Pressure. No pressure. But like, so a client would go away, 
and I would obsessively check bank balances. Like I couldn't breathe, even though there was cushion, even though the, and Dave used to say like, look at these numbers, Kara, you're okay. And he tolerates my conservatism and how I, how I roll. Um, but I was ready to take money off the table. And also I felt like I wanted to change in my career either way. I wanted, you know, I was ready to do something different. And Dave wasn't working on this business anymore. It was really me. And I felt like it was a time where valuations were great. So it was before everything went nuts. It was post COVID, post initial COVID, pre market reacting to all the infusion yeah. of money. But still, I mean, it's still kind of scary to be like, okay, I've been generating income through my business every year. I know how to do that. To all of a sudden, you got to take responsibility for this pile of money that you just received. Huge. Was that daunting? Is that scary? Or like, I guess, what was your your mindset going into that? Because that's, I thought that's I a lot was of nuts. Away. I, I thought I was nuts because now I had a pile of money and then take my scarcity mentality. That yeah. money, why would I be scared when I have a pile of money? Well, it's because I gave up the annual money that I knew I could count on every year. So now it goes to scarcity. It goes to, I have this, and if I don't have another hit, I'm going to have to live off of this. And this is not yeah. uh, enough to live off of for the rest of your life and have a, the kind of crazy life my big family wants. So um, it's enough to be okay-ish, but not, you know, I'm going to want to do more. So that was really, really, really scary. And for me... Uh, my payment came in three tranches and it wasn't all up front. And I was really actually grateful for that because it it made me feel like, okay, I'm not done. I'm not done. I'm not done. And over that time, I started thinking about right. how I'm going to generate money beyond. And that gave me the time to do it. Um, we also, Dave and I had a lot of arguments about how, what to do with that money. If you can imagine, because one's a risk taker. <laughs> and one's right, like... Right. Um, yeah. so but everything to it, Bitcoin, no, exactly. that's not a good idea. No, it didn't go to Bitcoin. I'll tell you that. I, yeah. By the way, I listened to you, Ryan. You told me no. Yeah. You, told you listen me to no. the best, Carrie. Then I know. I know. I, decisions. It's a, it's a I listen equation. to you. You tell me no. But what we did was Dave likes investing in like early stage startups and all of that. And, and I think that's great. Um, but that money, <laughs> sure that money is, is right. Yeah, yeah. It's gone. Like I look at it like yeah, yeah. it could pay one day, but essentially if I lost it, I wouldn't care. Like it has to be low enough that I could take a chance, but expect that that's, that could all not hit and it would be fine. So we, I allowed and felt good and supported Dave in that process. And I also got to contribute because we decided that we were going to invest in women and BIPOC entrepreneurs, like early stage, like that's, I'm going to give back to the world. I'm going to invest in these women and that's going to be great. Then I put, you know, the bulk in the market and say, you know, as safe as I could in there. And then I put enough cash to have on hand that I felt it probably more than the average bear. But right now with the interest rates that it's paying is like, okay, so it's sitting there for a little bit. So, so I tried to split between my desire for cash. We did a little real estate. We did most of the market. And then we did a little bit um, for uh, his, the risk stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the risk, the risk stuff. That I ignore. Right. You segmented each each yes. amount of money for, for different yeah. things to serve different yeah. purposes. And yes, like, but that was a war. Strategic, yeah. That was a war, that was, you said? It was a war. Figuring out what to do and how. <laughs> I was afraid it would all go away. The second it came in, I was like, okay, this is it. It's all going to go away now. And um, and then it didn't. And it was, you know, we made a lot of really good choices, I think.
so now do you guys have a plan like when when new money comes in exactly how it's going to be invested no questions asked like we've, we've agreed to this yes we yes we have a plan for large we had to have a lot of communication around money because it is such a yeah. different mindset and the other thing that i think is really important for anyone listening who has a partner with a different mindset is understand and appreciate their point of view and respect their point of view and still have your own like you can have the discussion but don't i can no better judge his desire to take risks than he can judge my desire to be conservative it's you you discuss yeah. together and meet in the middle and you can have great success with that so we have a plan for um any business exit dollars because we have a couple other businesses so we have business yeah. exit dollar plans and then we have like our income that we make in the year plans and how we spend that and and what we what we work on and we have a bunch of bunch of lots of fun rules and arrangements that we set to both to meet both needs meet both needs let me listen and placate and then we're gonna then we're gonna implement my plan that's the way i, I, I <laughs> translate that no, definitely a shared plan. That's why definitely. Carrie is so good. At what she does. No, he's amazing <laughs> at like knowing where to go. And he's done a couple of, he actually did a, some random investment, startup investment fund that did pay off quite a bit, but it was one out of, you know, all of these many that we tried. So, so Carrie, as, as an entrepreneur or as just a personal investor, I mean, have, have you guys along the way made any mistakes um or at least made made mistake or made made a decision in hindsight that you found was a mistake yes um so when we i'll tell you a couple i i, I don't know that dave would characterize it as maybe he would maybe he would so <laughs> I, I, i'm not sure so we um okay i ran likable media dave wanted to launch a software business uh, we launched a software business called Likeable Local, which was a platform designed to publish um, social media content. Think like Buffer or Hootsuite or one of those guys. And we raised money. We separated the company, which was the smart move from the services yeah. business. It was untouched. Um, and we raised money. And we raised a lot of money like from family and friends. And then we raised money from some investors. We raised a lot of money. And it got traction. But I found that for me... Um, raising money, when when I have to bet on myself, I can bet on myself. I, I don't love raising money in this world. And I just saw something about this, like the era of these VC businesses with no profit. Totally. And, yeah. and I think at that time, you know, we swung for the fences with that and it didn't work out as well. Um, so that was one area that was really hard. It still exists today under a different name. Um, and we were able to sell it, but the investors did not make back what they wanted, which I think is, I mean, it's the same way I talk about early stage startups, right? You know, it's a risk, but it's still heartbreaking. I think that's really, really hard. Yeah. Um, that was one mistake we did. I wouldn't say it's mistakes, but we bought, a, we bought individual stocks, um, for sure, for fun. Bob's cringing. No, I know, I know, I know. But it was fun. <laughs> like in the pandemic, like right when the pandemic hit, we were like, oh my God, buy Zoom, buy Peloton. They sword, 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 crazy. I never did anything with it. I just watched it and then it went away. Boom, 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 boom. And had I had it, maybe I'm like, listen, because by the way, Ryan also told me about tech and a bunch of other things. He told me like some of that stuff's no good. And, um, you know, but whatever, it was found money in the first place. It's found money. So that's a, 
little mistake and the big mistake I think is raising money and expecting that you're not going to have profitability for two years, but da, 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 da. you know, I'm a big bootstrapper. I think it's a great point too. I think as entrepreneurs, like, you know, you're, you're saying like, if I'm involved in the business is one thing, but like to pick startups and pick other businesses, cause we're entrepreneurs, like it, it's, it's a really hard game to play. And I think most people lose money in that. <laughs> so yeah. I, and it's okay to lose money a little bit. Like if you know, you can lose it. Like I think yes, the money that we can put, lose. right. Like you yeah. should, that helps me take risk. If I say, okay, I'm going to invest in these startups or I'm going to buy these individual stocks. I just have to know it could totally go away. I think I've, I'm sure I bought a tiny amount of Bitcoin, like to just try it. But yeah. like, I didn't care. Like I would, you know, it's just a small, small amount enough to enough that won't hurt you. That's for me enough that you care about. Yes. But doesn't. That's the right attitude is like, okay, this, if like, this is money I can afford to lose. And that's the advice we yep. give a lot of clients and they come with their like, you know, wild investment that, you know, it's not going to be a good idea Just say, okay, yeah. well, let's put enough money in there that if you lost it, your financial life isn't. Right. right. It isn't a detriment to financial right. life. I, think I did that. Yes. With the tax loss harvesting after all, I lost all those. I guess so. I guess it wasn't that bad. I guess it wasn't that bad, that mistake, because it did benefit me that way when I yeah, lost the silver all that. lining. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Um, switch gears a little bit, Carrie. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll wrap up relatively soon. But yeah. I, I think this is a good question to ask you, because like a lot of what you do, um, I know is empowerment with women. Um, that's one of your, your big passions. I mean, it's remarkable what you've done as a woman in business, like the real deal. Um, and you know, I've known you forever. So I've seen you grow your business, sell your business, like, you know, from, from the ground up. What are some of the behavioral differences you've observed with how women handle their finances versus men? I'm just curious, like what your perspective is on that? Because I think there are some differences. Well, I suspect. Oh, for sure. For sure. Let me just say, first of all, that I believe that the only way that we are going to change any dynamic. I think there's lots of stuff about equality and all of these things. It's just, you just gotta get a, uh, uh, sorry, it's curse. Hold on. You just gotta, here? Okay. You just gotta get a the money in the hands of women. And that's how you, <laughs> like, if we don't have money, yeah. we don't have power. That's all. So the, the idea is we need to make and get as much money as possible. Right. So the question is how we're not going to do that. First of all, generally working for somebody else, you're not going to do that. And you're certainly not going to do that without taking some form of risk. And I think women tend to be um, much, much more risk averse. We tend to have less confidence in ourselves. I'm, I'll share something very, I said this the other day on a talk. I, when I was selling my business and I, it was just me because Dave was out. They didn't want um, to have him in the negotiations because they wanted the person who was going to stay be the yeah. person to be interviewed. I felt like Oh my God, I'm so lucky they want to buy me, right? Yeah. They, they were so lucky to have me. They were lucky. Right, right, right. That's the, the yes. women, that's the difference is you come in like, I'm the and we come in like, thank you for having me. Um, you know, and like that, that is th that mindset that likability, if you will, my company was called likable, you know, that yeah. I'm, I'm lovely and I'm not going to take as much risk. I'm not going to offend you. I'm not going to take up too much space. I think that's, that's the mindset. And with money, it's the same way. It's, I need to preserve to make sure my family is okay. Yeah. I make sure it hits the fan. I can run. Uh, you know, I want to have enough to be safe and we prioritize safety. And the reality is you generally you are more safe 
like baseline safety than you think you are. In other words, there was no chance I was going to be homeless in that moment. There was none. And that fear kept me from pushing forward, the fear that I would make a mistake here. The other thing is um, fear of not understanding financial terms. Like I still yes. get anxious times. Like, you know, when I think about, okay, this is a mutual fund, this is an index, da, 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 you know, and I start to be like, I, and I don't, I, it's it, uh, the fear of asking questions for looking dumb sometimes prevents me from making the choices that I need to make. But well, now I, I need to add to that our industry is like very condescending in that way. And I think yes. like there's a, there's a bad reputation with women specifically. Now, Chris is condescending to everybody. So I think he's kind of an equal opportunity type person, but, <laughs> but, but I think in general, that's, that's why Chris is very special. All right, Carrie, just, just yeah. to Ryan. <laughs> but no, but I think, I think our industry gets a bad rap for being very condescending to women when it comes to, to understanding concepts and a lot of it is like it's a lot of words that like most people don't use in their daily life and it's like it's, it is it makes it kind of like a, a black box a little bit like what we do yeah i th I think that's exactly right so co combine the condescension with the lack of confidence and you've got a perfect storm perfect storm actually carrie you brought something that that really resonated with me and that's you know you said that you don't sometimes don't know the financial terms um and sometimes won't ask because you, you know you, you don't want to look dumb or whatever but you know yeah. I, I get that i mean how do you how do you overcome that? I mean, do you just ask the questions now? You know, tell us, tell us a little bit about that. It's interesting. Okay, so a few so a few things. First of all, when there is an acronym or something, I Google everything. I also read the Wall Street Journal because I think reading the Wall Street Journal is like learning um, a different language. If you don't, I had no, my parents, yeah. nothing. We didn't know a thing about this. I told you the stock market crash story at the beginning. I needed to understand any or all of this. I started a business never having looked at a PL in my life. And so I didn't wow. understand any of it, any of it. I went to Emerson for communications. You didn't have to take math. Like there was nothing. There was like, it, it, <laughs> no, no, nothing. And so, so I started reading and what I think women do in, in private a lot of times is, is we will look everything up after the fact. I was in a conference once and a woman was like, oh, I got served these legal papers and I didn't know what they were. And I got really nervous. I was like trying to negotiate something and I got nervous. So I just went to law school. Like, that's what we do. Like educate. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> to support the conference. So you just research a lot and you, you don't be afraid yeah. to learn. do it until you feel confident. Um, Kara, so uh, this has been amazing. Uh, to wrap things up, this is what we'd li like to ask this to all our guests. So I'll make no exception with you, of course. Okay. So I got to look at the question here. If you had to choose one album that after hearing it for the first time, it changed how you viewed the world forever, what is that album and how did it change you? I have to think. Give me one moment because I have, I had an ant. I'm just going to give the first answer that came to my mind. Okay. I grew up in Queens. I listened to hip hop uh, pretty much exclusively. Um, I was definitely like a, a girl, a girl hanging in the streets of Queens, a and, real girl and from Queens, yeah, a real girl from Queens, and I loved hip hop. But when I got one of my first CDs at the time, sorry to age myself, I got um, Nirvana's album. Wow. With Nevermind, Nevermind, and all of that. What's that album with the little naked boy on that's there? That's it. That's one of my favorite albums of all time. Never mind. Remember yeah. when the I remember when the video came on MTV for the first time. Small right. Teen Spirit. Uh, yeah. So right, and that exposed me to a different genre of music and and broadened um, my taste. And then 
had me very open to lots of other things. Like I used to be, I'm telling you, I knew every single 90s hip hop lyric there was to know <laughs> um, and even 80s. And for me, that started my journey. And that journey went to Joni Mitchell, went to um, wow. jazz, went to all kinds of stuff. But I, I really think if I'm thinking of an album that really changed um, my life, it would be Nirvana for exposing me to a totally different type of music that I never would have thought I would have liked. So you basically went from wearing champion sweatsuits to school every day to like combat boots and a flannel. And a flannel. Yeah. That was so cool. I mean, I think I still had like the hip hop sweater. I, I got to find a picture for you, right? It's like very funny. But oh my God. I, I want to see that for sure. I have my hip hop. Yep. That was a great answer. Good. Um, well, look, I'm going to take more of your time. That was amazing, Carrie. Uh, thanks for taking the time to chat with the, uh, the pain team here today. Uh, this is really just great information that uh, I'm really excited. And I think everyone's going to really value what you uh, talked about today with regards to money. I'm so glad. And you guys are the best. And I mean that all of you. Now I, I only knew Ryan before, but now I know Chris and Bob and I feel very, you're in good hands with pain. So love it. It's a powerful trio. I think we can all agree with Ooh. that. I love the banter. I love the whole thing. <laughs> All right, it's the hidden facts of finance, random financial facts that may surprise you or even shock you. All right, Bob, this was a very shocking statistic for me. But Gallup poll revealed nearly half of Americans are worried about the safety of their bank deposits. Meanwhile, a whopping 99% of U.S. bank deposits are under its normal $250,000 insurance limit. So clearly there's a disconnect between sentiment and reality if only one in about 100 bank deposits are uninsured, while nearly half of Americans think their savings here is actually vulnerable. Yeah, it just goes to prove, guys, that the markets are priced between expectations and reality, right? The expectation is every bank in the country is failing. My money's not safe. It's not secure. It's not insured. fact of the matter is 99% of deposits are insecured banks where they're backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government through the FDIC. Um, and it's wonderful, you know, because when we talk to clients all the time, you find out exactly what's on their mind and it's an, and whatever you think, right? We all read the same things. We all listen to the same shows. We all talk to each other. Everyone comes to the same conclusion at the same time, except for the market. The market's already six months to 18 months ahead of you. So, you know, just keep in mind the market's smarter than all of us. Don't be fooled. I don't care if you're talking to the smartest guy in the room. He's def he's definitely wrong because that information's already old. Yeah, right. If you're if you're super certain, you probably don't know what you're talking about. Because <laughs> <laughs> once you realize everything's uncertain, you can't predict the future, you're way better off. Trust us. Don't forget my Bobism. The obvious trade is always the wrong one. That's right. How many people wanted to buy regional banks after uh, Silicon Valley <laughs> Bank uh, went bankrupt and then found out, oh, regional banks are going to continue to go down every week. So you never know. Be careful out there. Chris. We estimate that M2, or money supply, uh, measured as M2, is still about $1 trillion to $2 trillion above its pre-pandemic trend line. There's still a lot of money floating around in this economy. Just another reason the economy is probably not going to fall off a cliff. Well, it just tells you one thing, right? Americans have a lot of money in their pocket to spend, and you never want to underestimate the America's ability to spend money. Yeah, I mean, you give, you give Americans firepower to spend, they're going to spend it. That's, uh, that's a good moral of the story. Well, you know, guys, also that's also a comment on Wall Street, too, because... You think about it, most investors will put more money to work when their portfolio is at an all-time record high, and they'll put less money to work, you know, when it's near its low or when it troughs. 
And of course, obviously, if it's low, that's the time to buy. When it's high, it's not the time to add money. So it's all about emotions. And it's not just the investor. It's all these salespeople that work for these Wall Street firms, right? They're out there, you know, promoting whatever's easy to sell. So if you feel really good about your portfolio, sit on your cash. If you're nervous, get that money to work. Beautiful, Bob. All right, well, another great episode, Pain Points of Wealth, episode 120. If you like our podcast, you love our podcast, you think it's the greatest thing ever, because you do, uh, you can simply give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Leave us a review there, please. If this is on Spotify. You can actually subscribe to our channel. And if it's on YouTube right now, give us a like on this episode. You can subscribe to our channel as well. Click that notification bell so you can be updated every week of all our new content. That's it for this week. Stay loose and keep an open mind. Thanks for listening to The Pain Points of Wealth. Hopefully you found the ideas discussed in this episode valuable and useful for your own financial journey. You can find out more about Bob, Ryan, and Chris's firm, Payne Capital Management, at BeBullish.com or through the contact information found in the description of this episode in your podcast player or app. Join us next week for another episode of The Pain Points of Wealth, brought to you by Payne Capital Management. Information provided on today's show is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Investment is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. 